Welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games, a board game podcast about board gaming and everything to do with board gaming and what we think about particular board games, which is always good. On today's show, we're going to be talking about a game we reviewed last year. Games we played this week, news and why it's extra special, our feature game, which is Xenoshift, and our topic of the day, which is one versus all versus co-op versus semi-co-op versus versus. How are you today, Mark? I'm doing very well. Maybe you want to introduce yourself? My name is Michael Walker, and I am the hype machine. And I just got back from a convention, and it was fantastic. Lots of games being played, tons of gaming, tons of meeting people, tons of looking at prototypes and new games that are coming out, and games that will soon be on Kickstarter, so that's kind of exciting. And it was run very well. It was a uh, convention called Breakout here in Toronto, and I had a wonderful time. Now that you're a minor celebrity, were you able to just enjoy yourself or were you constantly mobbed by our throngs of adoring fans come to tell you that Aeon Zend is the best game ever? It's true. Now, actually, I got more flack about uh, Architects of the West West Kingdom than it had been. It was was a great part where a woman brought her son up and said, this, you know, he's a big fan, but I'm sorry, we're going to have to, you know, take (laughs) offense to your your hatred of of, uh, Architects of the West Kingdom. Well, we've only played it once. It's still on the shelf. I'm sure we'll give it another try. No, we're not. I was about to say, I I, I felt bad about lying. Sure. (laughs) But you lied to a child (laughs) and their mother. I'm not playing that game again. (laughs) (laughs) So shall we get started with the Eurus? Yes, the Eurus this this week is Smog, Rise of Moloch. Have you played it since we reviewed it? I have not, but nor have I had any urge to get rid of it. Sure. I have many of the expansions still sitting in shrink, and I'm looking forward to, you know, opening them up and trying them out. I, I remember... When we played through the, I had good memories of playing through the first campaign. It is yet another dice pool. Oh my God, Simon. <laughs> there is more game mechanics than dice pools. Just just telling you because, you know, you, hate. You say this despite the fact that you've said b- both about hate and Rise of Moloch that that's what attracted to you to the game in the first place. Well, and then, There's and, a limit to how badly hypocritical we can get. Okay. I was planning on using all the hypocrisy well, points later. It's great, you know, and then, you know, then you can move on. It's like, oh, dice pool. I remember that being good. And then they do it again and again. And it's like, I've had enough now. We can do something else. Well, I certainly can't blame you for having unopened expansions because like many Kickstarter projects, especially as characterized by Simon, if you pledge for the base pledge, you're going to get a dozen expansions straight away. And I respect, in fact, your restraint for not having opened everything right away and dumping it all into some sort of giant melange of thematic incoherence, which is often the temptation. I'm just going to quickly go into it. Smog Rise Moloch is a Victorian age steampunk sort of investigating. You're part of the Pegasus League. It's this like sort of secret society that goes around and and dissolves cults and investigates cults and breaks them apart. And in I benzene. Thought, in benzene, yes. I thought it was well done. I thought the story, you know, you know, within reason, you know, seeing where it was coming from and seeing what they expected you to do with it. You know what I mean? It was not as always a role-playing game. I think for what they expected you to do, I thought it was, a, you know, a, a not bad uh, story and the miniatures, of course, coming from Simon, I thought were all fantastic. On a scale of 1 to 10, where 1 is it's entirely your fault and 10 it's entirely my fault, how much is it my fault that you haven't played it again? Because I'm, I'm, I was not nearly as enthusiastic about the game as you were. And, oh, and no, I, when it's been, su- it has been suggested a couple times by people, not ourselves, and maybe even you. And I, I'm usually the ones like, eh, I'd rather do something else. You said one being my fault, then it's a one. 
Because, okay. you know, you don't need to be included, right? <laughs> I'm just saying. No, that's being true because you said you didn't enjoy it, right? So yeah. I, if I if I planned on playing it again, I would have, you know, I would find people that would want to try something else and oh, I thought you were it. I thought you were implying that at shared gatherings, you'd be like, all right, Mark, here's the plan. We are going to be playing this game. You are going to be sitting on the curb out in the rain. Uh, no, no, no. Okay. So no. let's move on into games that we played last week. Narrowed it way down because, yet yeah, once again, we played Gugong. We've talked about tons. Yep. Teotihuacan, City of the Gods. All the games that I've talked about many times, I've just... Taken off, I'll just talk about some that uh, I don't normally talk about. Barony, it was one of my very first reviews that I did. I still think it's fantastic. We didn't play with Sorcery just because it was sort of, you know, the very first game we played because it's usually sort of a tradition with this group uh, that we play Barony first. And it's very chess-like, like I said before, because you can sort of, uh, you threaten areas and you sort of force your opponents to make certain moves and you can see in advance how many moves it's going to take them to get to stop you and it's very... You can program out things, and and I really enjoy that part of it. That's sort of why, one, when they said let's not play with sorcery, I was more than happy to, because that sort of takes away that, because it makes it very much more random, and just the fact that, you know, it takes way more time. Good game. We should I should probably play it more. I've only played it a small handful of times. I played another game of Millennium Blades, and this was a very, very, very excellent session. So Millennium Blades is very much like a lot of level 99 games in that by virtue of how much noise there is in the system, by design, and that's intentional, that it really rewards repeated plays. And uh, Argent the Consortium is kind of the same. Every time I play Argent, I like it a little bit more, but Argent is a little bit harder to get to the table because it's got such stiff competition. Millennium Blades is a little bit overlong for what it is, but the length will pay off if in Millennium Blades you get to do what happened in this last session, which is see a tremendous variety in deck builds. Millennium Blades is sort of a meta game about playing a CCG game, and it has these little tournaments where you, after building a deck, and building the deck is, is primarily the interesting thing. is, And so if you see deck stagnation, if somebody stumbles into a deck that really works or is unable or unwilling to pivot because of natural conservatism, then the game doesn't really shine. It doesn't play to its full strength. And ideally, you want a situation where, over the course of the game, everyone is trying out very different deck constructions. Now, not necessarily a complete turnover. You might, you know, use the same cards. But it's especially cool when you use sometimes the same core card, but in a very different deck and, and used in a very different way. And this last session, that's absolutely what happened. I don't. The, the same deck was never played twice. Everyone had a great time. It was, you know, two and a half hours, which is a lot for deck building and set collection. And that's, that's the primary downfall of a game of Millennium Blades. But as I say, if you get the variety, if you get that tremendous plurality of card effects, then it can be worth it. And so I had a very, very good time, and I'm probably going to try to whip it out again in the next few months, uh, especially since I just I, I actually pulled the trigger on the expansion on Kickstarter called Collusion. But then, then again, of course, maybe because I know that there's an expansion coming, even though it's going to be a, more than a year away, that means that I won't play it again ever. Uh, so who... That's, that's the way things go. It's just the way things go. It's My hands are tied. Things. What do you want me to do? So here's a game I didn't play at the convention. I'm going to talk about it. It's called Santorini. It's a fantastic... They say you can play with more than two players, but it's a fantastic two-player game. Yes. And it's fantastic because it looks fantastic. It's very easy to teach, like if you just do the base game without all the power, god power. So if you are looking for a game to bring someone into this world of gaming, I think Santorini is the one. The, the way it looks will completely draw them in the fact that you're building these beautiful looking buildings the game mechanics are dead simple and it is the depth is what you put into it and you really can get a lot out of Santorini and I would suggest that to anyone who's trying to introduce people to this hobby of ours have you played with the gods yes for sure yeah 
We played with God. We we didn't not in this session. We didn't even advance into the gods, but I've played it before with the gods. It's not too bad. It, it depends on. It actually tells you in the rule book what gods shouldn't be played against each other for the fact that you know they break. Oh, right. You know, and, and are unfair. So it's, that's good that they did that part. And I think if you play Santorini enough, then you know the gods are great because they mix it up. But I just don't play it enough for it to matter. That was Santorini. I got to try a game called Space Base. Name that's fun to say. This is by John D. Clare. He of uh, Mystic Veil and Custom Heroes and, uh, you know, the upcoming card crafting games by EEG. Space Base is kind of Machi Koro elaborated. Machi Koro being roll a die, get some stuff. Which I suppose is rather more pejorative than it deserves. I, I, I don't find Machi Koro offensive. It's just there's, there's not really much going on. So Space Base is a little bit elaborated. It's got some interesting notions of obsoleting ships. And what that does is you can start really piling on in certain numbers. You have a tableau of ships that trigger off various die rolls. And as you buy new ones, the old ship that you're displacing on the tableau uh, acquires a different ability that might trigger in different contexts. That part was all fine. It was certainly smooth moving. Uh, it was it was relatively inoffensive. There are a couple knocks against it, though. One of them is I'm not... The, the card balance seemed to be a bit wonky in that if you didn't immediately internalize the probabilistic nature of the die results, you were going to get into trouble because the what happens is you roll 2d6, but you're not bound to apply the sum. But most people, when when there's a 2d6 system, you immediately think 7 is going to come up all the time. But in Space Base, it's the opposite. The ones the 1 through 6 are definitely good early investments because you can split the dice up. If you roll a 3 and a 4, you can either activate the 7 or you can activate the 3 and the 4. So by all means, get the 1 through 6 ships. They're going to activate all the time. And that's exactly what happened in, in our game. I just got a couple point-generating ships in 1 through 6, and I just ran away with the game purely on that basis. And this was not some sort of great insight on my part. So I don't know if that was just a first-play jitter or whatever. And the second problem is that the some of the iconography was a little bit hard to parse. I felt bad for the game explainer. He was, you know, shuffling through the, the rulebook, and it's a very simple game, but we had difficulty construing what some of the ships did. And this wasn't because there was a tremendous variety of universe of ship effects. It was all very straightforward and not particularly exciting. But some of, it was just hard to figure out how they specifically worked. So, you know, that was 45 minutes of Space Base. It was fine. Probably won't seek it out again, but if somebody put a gun to my head, I would probably be willing to play it, and that was Space Base. So now that, when you talked about Space Base, it brought up another thing I want to talk about with the convention. Lots of conventions you go to, there seems to be that one core game that gets played all the time. And I thought it was great, the fact that this convention did not have that. Mm. Although Space Base, I've seen, I saw it more than I thought I would, but you know, in the last few conventions I went to, it was like Blood Rage. Blood Rage everywhere, all about Blood Rage. Because I hadn't been to one in a while, right? Maybe a year <laughs> it was about you know a year and a half ago, right? Sure. So, but this one it was great. The fact that it wasn't this one game that was you know, or you know that you know just a year ago it was uh, terraforming Mars everywhere. You know, everyone was playing terraforming. Never Mars. heard of it. I know, I know. Have you played Space Space? I did once, very you know, for a brief time before. You know, it was like we tried it as a filler, so we got like halfway through and then stopped. We uh, pulled out Scythe at the very end of the convention, which is great. Last day, huge game. It was uh, interesting because we got I got to introduce some people to the airships and they enjoyed them. We uh, luckily drew uh, abilities and end game conditions that you know weren't over the top or seemed to work. You know, just didn't have a huge impact on the game. What did come up was some of the a lot of the new cards and the exploration thing that were really interesting. The the things they did it was like. Next time someone does uh, the secondary part of their action, you get the resources instead of them. 
Or instead of them going back to the bank, I mean, right. you, you got them and there were some other ones that, you know, stayed out or you marked territories or just some really interesting things they did with these new expiration cards. I was I was very pleasantly surprised. I'm glad I didn't look through the deck when I bought it. I just threw it in and had them all be surprises. I've only played once with the expanded deck and I, I agree with you. There's some really interesting stuff there. The balance strikes me as moderately suspect, but if the universe of effects is sufficiently cool, then I'm, I'm, I'm willing to care less about that. If my first response is, oh, that's a neat neat introduction to the system. I'm perfectly willing to bury the second thought is, well, it seems a lot better or worse than, than some of these other cards. Did you play with any of the Fenris stuff or was this just Wind Gambit, Invaders from Afar? And just that, yeah, we just pulled, we pulled out the two, just because there was two, you know, fairly new people to the game and the other, and another person that, you know, only had played it two or three times. I didn't want to, you know, bring out the two new factions type thing where... Yeah, but they're much simpler than airships, I think. I suppose... I think some of them you have to draw abilities, though, right? That change every time. I just didn't want to deal with it type thing. Fair enough. So just kept them out. I need more experience with it, I think. So I'm more comfortable with introducing it to new people. And that was Scythe. Scythe. Played another game of Obsession. I talked about this last week, the sort of uh, Pride and Prejudice-esque game of uh, getting on the train to Bone Town, which I definitely think they should put on the front of the box. I don't know why they didn't. And I played it with the one person I know who is more of a Jane Austen fan than I am. And so very much like before, the primary draw was looking at all the different personality cards. And that really injects tremendous flavor into the game. It really, it's shocking because I'll I'll, I'll say again what I said last week. You take one step back and analyze it from a sort of bird's eye view. And you're just doing the same thing over and over and over again. You pick a building, you activate it, and you you play a certain number of cards and they give you bennies. And you repeat. But when instead you're imagining what these two biddies are talking about while they're playing whist and (laughs) you know that one of them is tremendously ill. So she needs to be literally carted around by two ladies maids, but she's so incredibly famous amongst the aristocracy that she knows everyone. Anyway, uh, so you get these lovely little stories. I don't know how how long obsession is going to last for me because again, mechanically, it's not particularly engaging. But the second play, uh, the third play actually with, uh, that I had last week was still very enjoyable. And it's sufficiently charming that even people who are not already predisposed to the theme find it pretty engaging. Because again, getting getting to tell fun stories about weird members of the gentry is great. And some of the pictures are just so evocative. You know, you look at them and say, you know, that's guy, that guy's a stone cold killer. He's been in a lot of duels before. Uh, the lack of player interaction continues to grate, especially since this is a game about throwing parties. I mean, social circles don't work that way. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe board game geeks think that it works that way. Yeah, maybe they should have like a little mini game that you do, you know, when you throw a party, there's like a little sort of social mini game you get to pull out and play, you know. To... Or even just a speed dexterity game. You gobble up the guests yeah. and then you find out it's like, oh no, I, I, I got the American heiress. So. You know, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Obsession or the fact that it shouldn't be popular, but there's three separate games of Obsession being played at, at the convention. Oh really? Yeah. I thought, I thought well, it was a very obscure I... You know, I, I don't. It's a limit. It's a it's a relatively limited release, but it got championed by a couple of people who are bigwigs in Toronto. So that might explain oh. why it was uh, why why it was it was seen there. Look, it's good. I enjoy it. And you haven't played it, so you shouldn't. You shouldn't. Uh, I'm not. I, was, I wasn't trying to knock it because, like I said, I have no I idea. I think you were the, the who the designer was or who. who well, it's a it's a first time design, uh, but. Look, it's not a very commonly done theme. It's not even a very commonly themed generally. I, you know, the, the notion, given that the majority of my fiction consumption could be classified as some categorization of romance, it's actually strange that there are so few games that, that seek to capitalize that on that in anything remotely resembling a tasteful way. 
Uh, which, again, kind of highlights one of my thematic misgivings about obsession. You can win the game without winning the the hand of one of the two wealthy people in marriage. That right. that, that that continues to be a little bit of a sore spot thematically, uh, but I understand why it's there. Anyway, that was obsession. On the topic of companies that support old games, Caverna, which is you know relatively old in our expanding market nowadays. Got Ex- expanding is a good euphemism. Yes. <laughs> in, expanding with Caverna. It's called, uh, the, oh my God, sorry, I'm going to have to, I didn't write the name down. What is it called? The Forgotten Folk? Do, I mean, do, to you, they're definitely the Forgotten Folk. Click, hey click, 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 click. So I got to, I got to purchase a new expansion for Caverna called The Forgotten Folk. And what it does, it, it's very much written like, uh, our, our good writer of, of Base Alert, where it's very tongue in cheek. It's like, there are no more dwarves. We will never speak of the dwarves again. <laughs> it is now the people. And every time you see dwarves, it is people. And if you say the word dwarves, then, you know, everyone will get offended. So it's very tongue-in-cheek <laughs> and funny that way. But it really leads, uh, adds a lot to the game. And, like, uh, me and the and the fellow that I drove up with, we would never play Caverna without it. But it's one of these things, do you, do you really need it? Like, how often do you get Caverna to the table? Do you really need a $50 expansion? for a game that you get to the table once a year. So it does that a lot. It does give you like unique powers and, and, and you change, uh, four rooms for every, for every faction, they get four special rooms and it tells you which rooms to pull out. So you get all a whole bunch of new buildings and a whole bunch of new abilities, two new resources. So it seemed, it's very, it was very interesting and very fun. And it's always, I always enjoyed Caverna. So it was a great time. On a related topic of uh, reprints and games from very, very, very long ago, like 10 whole years, I finally got to play Claustrophobia 1643, which is the recent redevelopment. Just a word on the uh, design team, actually. this is So, so the reprint was designed by uh, Croc, who did the original game, and a man by the name of Laurent Pouchin. Uh, I mention this for two reasons. Number one, because otherwise I might not have the opportunity to use, to speak any French over the course of the episode, and that would that would be a tragedy. I was going to say, people would be very upset. Yes, it would. And secondly, Laurent Pouchin designed what I think is the best miniatures game in a box that was called, uh, it was called Akko, Era of the Essigir. It was a relatively minor release by uh, Hasgard Productions based on a comic book that I, I don't particularly enjoy. But it was just a really, really, really solid miniatures game in a box with... Uh, standees instead of actual miniatures, although you could buy miniatures later, uh, really emphasized tactical positioning and army building and things like that, and it had a really interesting dice system. Anyway, uh, and uh, Laurent Pouchin since then has mostly just done development work. He's designed scenarios for things like the Conan game. He's done some background work for Mythic Battles Pantheon. He, he's just, you know, kind of around in the in the way that some American designers are just around and they, you know, have, have their hands in a whole bunch of different projects. Anyhow, I don't know to what extent he was involved in the reprint. I had some misgivings about some of the mechanical changes in Claustrophobia 1643 because, as we said during the review, we're both big fans of Claustrophobia. I was very impressed with a number of the design elements that changed. For one thing... There's a lot more flexibility on the part of the human player. The, they get these new cards called instinct cards, and it helps them mitigate the dice allocation bit, which can get very unforgiving as the game goes on. And it gives them the opportunity to get a little bit more uh, flexibility in the late game, because one thing we mentioned in the review is that at the start of the game, the humans are as powerful as they're ever going to get, and then they just get worn down and worn down and worn down. In 1643, 
you do have some ability to pull out some stuff near the end of the game, which is nice. And the demon player now is also less at the mercy of their random rolls at the start of the start because their abilities you can build towards from turn by turn. In the base game of Claustrophobia, in order to trigger an ability, you just had to have the right dice combinations on a given roll. And you could try to get more dice from round to round, but if you didn't roll what you needed, you didn't roll what you needed. In 1643, you can sock dice away to try to trigger abilities later. And many of those abilities are now more expensive to trigger. They need more dice, and so you have to build towards them. But then the human player can see that, and they can plan accordingly. Anyway, those little bits I loved. I thought were great. Graphically, though, I just want to comment, there's been a number of very odd graphic design decisions. And so overall, visually, I think the, the design is a sideways step, if not a step back. So the minis are no longer pre-painted, which of course is just a, a function of the market now. You can't do pre-painted minis anymore, really. Not certainly not on a, uh, even on the scale of a, of a 1643. There was just this brief halcyon period, let us call it the Age of Heroescape, where pre-painted minis were a thing. And the tile design is weird. The back of every tile now has a turn track. So if you ever need to track turns, you just take a tile and track it on the back of that. But it's kind of unesthetic to have every tile have a scale of one. Anyway, weird, weird stuff like that. Some of the icons aren't particularly useful. The color scheme is a bit strange. Eh. I miss the cute trogs. Let me just boil it down to that. In the first edition, the trogs were adorable. These lovely little guys that would bite your faces off. They were so cute. Couldn't help but root for them, which is apparent in the theme because the demons are the good guys in, in claustrophobia. But mechanically, I'm, I'm very impressed with what they did. I had misgivings. I thought it was a definite step forward. Graphically, I think it's a step back. Unfortunately, I, I started thinking actually about whether I could start using the first edition components of 1643, and you can't really. It would be too difficult. So I've kind of given up on that. So despite the fact that last week I very confidently proclaimed that I was done with reprints, I have to go and see... And be reminded that I love it when you take a solid system and you start playing with it and you tweak it in nice little ways. And that's why I said that Walker couldn't use up all our hypocrisy right. points because I need I need them badly. Well, it's funny because I was, was going to have a question, but now I know what, how you're going to answer. It's because we had the two games that were very similar. We have Mutant Chronicles and we have Claustrophobia. I, I, I dispute their similarity, but go on. No, no, not their similarity mechanically. Just the fact that oh. they both came out roughly, you know, in that era. You know, they're both, you know, one V all type games, you know, tight. You know what I mean? Like it's, I know it's only two claustrophobia is not a two player game, but I mean, it's like you have one overlord versus, sure. you know, a guy playing a group of people. Sure, sure. And they just both got reprinted and they both have similar rules to what they had back then. You know, which one, you know, brought their game to the table for this new edition. It's obvious that claustrophobia did from what you just said and from what you said last week about how... It's a little tricky, right? Because the comparison's hard because I think that claustrophobia started out with a much tighter, more focused design. And it was released in 2008. And Mutant Chronicle Siege of the Citadels was in the early 90s. And it was visionary in a lot of ways. Uh, but in a lot of ways, it was very much a product of its time and, and sloppy and, and sort of all over the place like games of that era. So it, it's it's kind of an unfair comparison. But I I don't regret having picked up the claustrophobia reprint, even though I wish I could ha could because then I that might cure me it, it ward me off of the next couple of reprints. But uh, I'm very glad I got it to the table. I'm very in interested to see what you think of some of the changes because I know you're a curmudgeon and hate change. I totally do. But that was Claustrophobia 1643, and those are the games we played last week. Now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So this is episode 60, Mark. Do you know what that means? We can, sh you know, shill out our Patreon. <laughs> 
Is that what sixty means? Yeah. It was every every ten and every five. I said we, that's that was that was the rule. We're not gonna do it every episode. We're only gonna do it every five episodes. So seeing as it's sixty, we get to say that we have a Patreon. So if you want to go check it out, we have some very interesting steps to uh, pledge for. So yeah, that's our Patreon. That's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to go in, into anything. All right, moving on. Detail. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to shill it out too much more than that. So last week I talked about the ongoing Age of Steam controversy. And sure enough, very much like how we single-handedly brought a reprint of Web of Power and how we single-handedly are responsible for the ketchup expansion. Food chain. Food chain magnate. Uh, we single-handedly brought peace to Age of Steam. Congratulations, Mike. You know, we really it are... Was- like the Peace Prize, Nobel Peace Prize, I'm sure will be coming. It's got to be in the mail. It's, it's I got to get some of that dynamite exactly. money. Anyway, so <laughs> we had nothing to do with it. Uh, <laughs> we were just, I just flagged that it was a tragedy. And again, we don't have a position on whose fault it was. But the central harm that we identified, that the game was going to be published, the, namely the new version of Age of Steam, without any designer credit, we thought that was terrible. And that's no longer the case. Now, you may think that the resolution is bad because there are still some people who assert that John Borer designed Age of Steam, not Martin Wallace. But the new edition will have Martin Wallace's name on the cover, which is exactly what the earlier editions did. John Borer has never received a primary designer credit in the past. Now, maybe that's wrong, but at the very least, we have now something that is more consistent with the publication history of Age of Steam. Martin Wallace has come to terms with Rick Suid of Eagle Griffin Games. They've made some sort of arrangement. I don't know what was exchanged or what was said, but anyway, they, they now both publicly say they're happy with the arrangement and uh, Martin Wallace's name is going to be replaced on the masthead so uh, I'm very pleased at that that element of the resolution specifically nice so Dune is being reprinted on the subject of who really asked for this a lot of people did why have they not played Rex okay all right so that that's a that's a huge minefield so I assume so I assume you've played Dune a long 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 time ago okay I played Dune as well and I came to it probably interested in it in a different way because, and th- this will surprise few people because it, it, it seems like every time I talk about a theme, I talk about how I'm uninterested in the theme. Uh, the Dune universe has zero appeal to me. In fact, that probably has negative appeal to me. I commonly refer to the Kwisatz Haderach as the knick-knack paddywhack. And uh, I tried reading the novel once. I got about five pages in and gave up in disgust. It's just not for me. It's just so not for me. The best thing about the Dune universe is Sting to me, which goes to show you how much I I, I like the universe because for most everyone else, it's the other way around. Anyhow, but a lot of people love the Dune game and Rex is very different. Having played both Dune and Rex, I think they're very, very, very different games. I don't agree with the common wisdom that you cannot retheme Dune, uh, but I certainly am of the opinion that the Twilight Imperium universe is not what I would call especially gripping. I don't think that's even controversial amongst some no. Twilight Imperium. Okay, okay, you'll literally give me that. But here's the thing. Here's what I will say about Dune. People have been making homemade copies for a very long time. It fetches very high uh, prices in the secondary market. It was first published by Avalon Hill in the late 70s. Uh, actually, well, they, uh, this is, and this is by the Elon design team. This is uh, Bill Eberl, Jack Kettridge, and Peter Lotka. These are the guys that also made Cosmic Encounter, and they invented Hoax. All in the late 70s. And Hoax, by the way, is like Coup, but 17 times better. Uh, don't play the Fantasy Fight version, though. It's not as good. The original Elon Hoax from the late 70s is, is absolutely great. Anyhow, these guys, on the topic of ahead of its time, these guys were absolutely ahead of their time. At best, Dune felt like a very tight 
game of Cosmic Encounter. And at worst, Dune was, you know, four hours of weirdness and ill-defined rules and competing rule sets and who knows what. I've only played it the once. It ended in a Bene Gesserit win, which for those familiar with the Dune game, uh, certainly tell you how, how, it, how it all went down. And we retired the game on the basis that, number one, we didn't really want to play again. And number two, we couldn't imagine the game ending in a better way. So, but again, people have been asking for this for a very long time. I think the combat system is fantastic. But other than that, I just, I, I just don't. Anyway, like I said, in, a, in a world where we get 800 games a year, why do we need to reprint this, this game? People love it. Okay. That's a reason. Look, I'm happy that people are getting Dune again. People right. really like Dune. They like the universe. They like the rule system. It's being reprinted by Gale Force 9. It was held up in Wright's Limbo forever. And who knows? Maybe next uh, Magic Realm uh, or other games that have been held up in, in Wright's Limbo for forever and ever. So that's that's my news about Dune. So in news that, that won't be out for a while, but I got to play a game that will be on uh, Kickstarter in August. It's called Enos Rise. Because I love uh, Level 7 Invasion, a giant cooperative game, this is going to be yet another giant space cooperative game where you're going out to get these data cubes and you're programming this ship and you have all these unique powers and these rooms that you can upgrade. And very interesting how it all worked and had a dice system. And I'm looking forward to seeing how the Kickstarter goes. And that's called Enos Rise. So that's the news and why it doesn't matter. On to our feature game, which this week is going to be Xenoshift. Uh, specifically, uh, there have been two versions of Xenoshift, Xenoshift Onslaught and Xenoshift Dreadmire. We are going to talk about both of them. Of course. This was put out by Kuhlman Not in 2015, the base version designed by uh, Karen, I don't know how to pronounce the name, Philosophiles and Michael Chennault. Dreadmire only has credit to Michael Chennault. And this is a co-op sci-fi deck builder. Now, just in terms of the design pedigree, I will spare a few words for Michael Chennault. I really, one of the things that, that, that made me a little bit chagrined about the way that Coolman or Not is really flogging Eric's, Eric Lang's non-participation in any project. We've made the joke before that we get the solid impression that if Eric Lang was within a 100-kilometer radius of any design work that was done in any game, they will put his name front and center right on the campaign page. Say, you know, this, this is an Eric Lang joint, but it was designed by these other guys. But, but Eric Lang, we both like Eric Lang. That's fine. But Michael Chennault was an in-house developer for Coolman or Not long before uh, Eric Lang was. And I really like a lot of his work. He did he, – he worked on Xenoshift. He worked on Rum and Bones, which I maintain is, is – especially for what it is, is a, is a very, very neat game. Uh, Michael Chanel is an interesting guy. He's actually working now on the new Bloodborne game, which is going to be probably a bit strange. Uh, strangely enough, Eric Lang designed the first Bloodborne card game, and now <laughs> Michael Chanel is going to be designing the next uh, Bloodborne game. So there you go. It all it, it's, it comes full circle. Time is a flat circle, as we know from True Detective. So, Walker, why don't you give an incredibly su- unhelpful summary of what one does in Xenoshift? Well, Xenoshift is a typical deck builder, except for the fact so that you have currency, you buy your cards from this pool that's in the middle, except for the fact when you buy your card, it goes into your hand. And Xenoshift gives you that Aliens movie feel, where there's all these things attacking your base, and you need to beat them back, that there's overwhelming odds, and that you are the last line of defense, right? If you fail, then it's all over. Like that Space Hulk feel where if you make one mistake, you know you're done and it's over. So I think it's very interesting how they pulled it off in this co-op deck builder. So let's talk about how cards flow in 
Xenoshift? Because I think you're right to stress that that's one of the ways in which it's pretty interesting. There's the, you know, buying cards and it goes straight into your hand, which we generally prefer. It's not as unique as it once was. You see more and more games doing that. But broadly speaking, I'm in favor of any system, and this is going to come up a couple times actually when I'm talking about Xenoshift, that mitigates the luck of the draw in deck builders, because I think that deck builders have far, far more luck than many people attribute it to. The way cards distribute, the way they clump, getting a good hand, getting a bad hand, can be hugely determinative. But in Xenoshift, at least, if you buy a card, you know exactly where it's going, it's going to your hand. Unless it doesn't, because as a co-op deck builder, which is a thankfully expanding field, you can, when you buy the card, or when you play the card, it can be to anyone. So if you're playing uh, a four-player game, not that I recommend that, more on that later, and you buy a card, it doesn't go necessarily into your hand, it can go into anybody's hand. And when it is in your hand, whether it's for the first time or the second time or the third time or what, what have you, regardless of where the card originally came from, and you're playing it, it doesn't have to go to your section of the board. It can go to anybody's section of the board, and now it's their card, and they get to do with it whatever whatever they want. And I mention this because I think it really is a great way to make it make Xenoshift feel more co-op than a lot of other co-op deck builders. Yeah, well, it's pretty well its only mechanism that does make it co-op. There are a few items that let you, you know, shoot across to the other lane or abilities that let you do that. But the, I think the core part of making it feel as a team effort is this, the fact that you can, oh, you're, you know, you don't have many troops this turn. No problem. I'm going to help you out there because everything else seems to be luck of the draw. Let's go back to the cards and the way this game breaks most rules of other deck builders. And that is with the money. Not only do you get to draw a money card at the beginning of every turn, the game's broken into three phases. So at the end of every phase, you're going to collect up all the money that's in your discard pile from the first phase, and it converts into a higher currency so you can start buying these bigger cards. And this, you know, all this money doesn't clump up your deck. And I think that is, like, I haven't seen, I can't think of any other deck builder that's that does that. And it's fantastic. I've never seen it, seen it done. So there are a number of ways in which the waves escalate. The enemies that you face get stronger, you get access to better qualities of troops, and yes, your money starts getting better. And the, the big thing that I like about the money system of Xenoshift is we've been paying three for a silver in some form or another in deck builders for a very, very, very long time, ever since Dominion came out. Th roughly three for a silver, namely spending you know somewhere between two to four deck builder dollars to get the slightly better deck builder dollar into your deck has been a staple of these things forever. And it's fine mechanically. I'm just really tired of it. You don't even need to buy money. Exactly. In Xenoshift, right? in Xenoshift you cannot buy money. It's purely automated into the system. And that part I really like because it strips out the buys that can be strategically uh, wise, but aren't particularly satisfying. I want to buy toys. And in Xenoshift, the only thing you buy are toys. It's fantastic. And the art, there's tons of variety. Like we said, you get to buy, like you said, toys. And there are a lot of toys. So it's this giant randomizer deck, and it could be anything from medical supplies that you can provide, or grenades, or flamethrowers, or chainsaws, or, or like, like eight different kinds of armor. And it's, and it's just not stats. All of these items make sense. Like the chainsaw, if you overkill something, it goes into the monster behind it. You have this, you know, flashbang armor. If it, if it, you know, damages something, it'll stun the creature behind it. All of these, all of these items make sense. And it's very thematic and mechanically sound. And that was another point I want to make is that it's easy to teach. And there's very seldom are there any like rules glitches. It's very straightforward. I really like how that works. I'm going to disagree with you very mildly about two of those elements. Number one, the art. I really like the art. I don't like, however, uh, that it's 99% men. 
like especially in science fiction. Science fiction for a long time has uh, reveled in the uh, badass heroine character, and everybody in Xenoshift is just some dude in sci-fi armor, and it's well executed. It's just a little one note. As far as the simplicity of effects, I think I agree with you that it's it, it there's there's not a whole lot of, of of ambiguity what's going on, but I think that they did a good job in ironing out some of the potential glitches when they went from the first set onslaught to the second set Dreadmire because there's this notion of monsters having reveal effects and there was a weird timing exception about what you could do in response to what and it, it worked it was fine but it was just a little bit of a rough edge and Dreadmire they completely changed it in a way that's vastly simple and in a way that was very very easy to backport which was just great again that's the kind of development work that I associate with Michael Chennault when he when he starts refining designs either through expansions or, or second editions he, he tends to find ways those little clever bits that smooth out things that you either didn't realize needed smoothing out or doing it in a way that was vastly cleverer than it could have been. So I do appreciate that development. The other, the other thing I have here is play replayability. Like we already talked about all the different items you can get. You, you get to draw, like you're protecting this base and the space has all these different rooms and you're going to draw a, a random room, you know, out of like 10 different rooms you can draw at the beginning of the game and they all have unique abilities as well. And it's three different abilities. As we said, there's three waves and you get a new ability every time you reach a new wave. And it, it, and it also helps you seed your starting deck. Every room gives you two cards out of the pool and that's a very interesting way to make everyone's deck unique off the beginning, sort of give you a theme to go with or, you know, you, you're, the, you're the medic or you're the... And I, th- I think that is a fantastic way they did it. I've played a, a fair bit of Xenoshift, and I agree with you that the variety is is tremendous. There's one minor exception again, and that is in the soldiers, because you can buy either soldiers or items, and you need a proper balance of both in your deck. That's the one area where you need to be careful, because too many items, and you you know your soldiers won't be able to equip them all, and if you only have soldiers, well, actually, you could probably get by with only soldiers, but then you won't have room to deploy them, and so you, you probably want some balance there. But the problem is, there's not a whole lot of soldiers available in any given game, and if you just have one one set, if you just have Onslaught or Dreadmire, you're not going to see tremendous variety in soldiers from game to game. And that is one aspect that I wish had been fleshed out a little bit more. That having been said, though, in your average game of uh, Xenoshift, you're going to see a minimum of nine different items, and then you're going to see a minimum of eight different types of soldiers. But those soldiers are staggered based on waves, so in any given wave, you're only going to be access to two or three. And so there's a bit of, of, of repetitiveness in there but honestly as you say in the context of different kinds of monsters to fight and different special abilities and all the different items you have bosses it's, different bosses yes tons of stuff let's, I, let's go over just how it works quickly so people understand what we're talking about with Xenoship so first of all you have your purchasing phase where you buy items and stuff they go into your hand you already have your starting hand of six cards and then you have this lane where you can set out four guys and equip them up with stuff and they have this really unique and interesting way to mark the cards. They all have, like, either you can have, like, a cool grafting thing or a psychic ability or items. And they all have symbology on the, bo- on the bottom. And each soldier can only have one of these things. So it's an easy way to parse out, you know, how many things you can equip a guy with. So I thought they did that very interesting way. And they all either have an attack stat and a defense stat that's going to help out that soldier. So you line them up and then you get your your hand of villains and they line up on the left hand side then you reveal your first villain and then they you know they sort of just bump up against each other and you know you do so much damage they do so much damage and if the guy dies then everything slides forward 
and you keep going and hopefully you have enough firepower there or your teammates can help out enough that you don't do any damage to the base because that's the whole purpose of the game is to save your base. It starts off with this, you know, number of hit points based on the number of players and you just try to mitigate how much damage it takes every turn and hopefully by the end of nine turns you still have hit points left on your base. There have been a number of games that have sought to emulate the tower defense kind of video game that's very, very uh, prevalent with, you know, the subgenre of real-time strategy that's called tower defense. And honestly, I think Xenoshift does the best job of emulating the good bits of tower defense. You have to set up, you know that there's going to be this wave of terrible things and you have some notion of what they can do, but you don't know the specific determination of them. And you need to set up your initial forces to try to make sure that as they come, you're able to kill them as they walk down what is effect. You're right, they just walk along and bump up against things. And I have played games that were explicitly trying to be tower defense. They didn't feel especially tower defensey to me. Sometimes for good, sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a bad way. But when uh, people have asked me, like, you know, can you recommend a tower defense game? Xenoshift is the game that I think of because it, that's honestly what it feels like to me. My next point I'm just going to go into because you sort of alluded to there is the difficulty level. I really feel as though they make the difficulty level perfect. Like in every game, it's just hard enough. You're almost, you're, you know, at least getting into the third wave and either, you know, you've, you've. you've really? You always get to the third wave? Well, mostly. Wow. I think. You're much better at and, this than I am. And you've stopped, you know, a lot of the damage or, or not enough of the damage. And, you know, you haven't, I've, I haven't won a lot of games of Xenoshift, but it always felt as though there's always that, you know, that's that little bit of chance that if I had just, you know, stopped that one boss, we would have made it. I think it works out fantastic every time. We both prefer harder co-ops and Xenoshift is definitely on a spectrum of co-ops, say going all the way from level zero Spirit Island on the easiest level to, I don't know what the hardest co-op I've ever played, probably, probably Assault on Doom Rock, either that or Ghost Stories. Xenoshift is definitely closer to Doom Rock and Ghost Stories than it is to level zero Spirit Island. I don't like how the player scaling kind of subtly messes with uh, the, the difficulty level. Again, I'm not going to complain about balance. It's just I, I sometimes find it a little bit awkward when co-ops get radically easier or harder with different numbers of players. At the start of the game, your base has a certain number of hit points based on the number of players in the game. And what that does is it doesn't on the surface immediately change the, the difficulty level, but what it does is it re- affects your margin for error. If you're playing a three or four player game, the base can afford to take some mistakes. And so you can deal with some weird draws or or random vagaries of chance if everyone is playing competently, or you can deal with a particularly bad turn or two just because the, bo- the, the base can soak up that much damage. If you're playing a solo game or a two player game, the base is so fragile that it feels like one or two mistakes or one or two bad instances is enough to scupper the entire game. And that's okay on the face of it. I just, it, I, I prefer it when it scales a little more cleanly. That's all. All right, I have two more good points, and then we can go on to some other bad things, I think. Sure. The first thing is Dreadmire, the weather deck. I think they did a fantastic job of, of making it more thematic. What you have is this uh, weather deck that you flip up a card every turn and it tells you whether it's foggy or raining or whatever. And there's some weapon effects, not very many weapon effects, so it's mostly to do with the enemies that are attacking you. They have all these different effects that will trigger based on what type of weather it happens to be out. It seems very thematic, like in with the pitcher, you know, you can see this thing, you know, can see better at night or would do better at night or hide in the rain or stuff like that. I think it really brought out the feel of the game. Eh. One more card to flip. Another source of, of weird randomness. Didn't do a whole lot for me. I don't object to it, but it didn't really... 
It didn't really add much to my to, to my enjoyment. And the last part is the fact that there's an app for it. And I think the app, they did a pretty good job. It runs through very quickly. You can get a game through awfully quick and sort of will tell you, show you how to play and make sure you don't make any mistakes. I thought, and has cool little missile and firing effects if you, if you don't disable it for speed. <laughs> so what are some of the aspects of Xenoshift that you don't like, Walker? Uh, the setup and teardown is a bear I have here. Yeah. But but that's but that being said, it's much like any other deck yes. builder, right? You're sorting out the cart, you know, you're picking. Like we said, at the very beginning of the game, you have nine different weapons you have to, you know, put out. So you're randomizing all those and then flipping through little cards, trying to find those. And then depending on what sets you have, you're picking, you know, which uh, soldiers you're going to have in. You know, then making everyone's starting deck. And then anyway, I can go on and on. But yeah, yeah so tear it. And then you have to put this all away. And there are no dividers. No dividers. There's absolutely no dividers anywhere. The box is fine, but there are absolutely no dividers in any Xenoshift product at all. Uh, so there are great ones on Board Game Geek to print out, any number of options. And I did print them out and cut them, and it took me forever. But I really think, look, you can get away with some number of dividers. Like, you can get a little bit sloppy, kind of like the way uh, Shadowriff does it. You know, you don't... I'll forgive you for not having a divider for every attack action. But there is a divider for attack actions, and then you just lump them all together, and then, then it's your problem. But when there's that many different stacks of cards and there are no dividers anywhere, I get a little bit peeved. So on to my next point. It is really only good with two to three players. I would never play with more than that. I would never play it with three. It's just, it's really too long. It... But that being said, I, I looked at what I had in the box, and I think even if you don't have everything, you could have two separate games going at the same time. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. I just, especially if you've got the expansion. Even... It, well, yeah, definitely if you have any of the, uh, of the extra stuff, it's well, cause, definitely cause, easy. But I'm Well, because Dreadmire is a standalone expansion, yeah. effectively. But I think even if you didn't, I think you could still squeak by, as long as you had some of the expansions, you could still squeak by with two having two separate games going at the same time. I've enjoyed all my games of Dreadmire, and... Sometimes with two, it's dragged a little. With two, I think it's it's fine. It's a very good solo game. I think if you're at all interested in solo gaming, I think that Xenoshift is 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 very good. With the caveat that I said that your margin for error error is very very minor because the base is so fragile. I've played it with three and I've played it with four, and I I I would consider playing it with three if everybody if I could trust everyone there to play super fast because a lot of the game is just in executing the wave. And that's part of why it drags so much, because you do have choices about what to do as the wave is executing. And I actually think it's slightly more robust than you said, because soldiers can give you effects. There are cards you can play from hand. There are, oh, there are weapon was. effects just, and all these things. I was things. trying to do it very quickly. There's definitely, it's not sure. just this bump up, you know, they do damage, we do it, There is a whole system of, you know, they do a reveal effect, and, you know, then you have all your teammates and you that can stop that reveal effect or stop the damage, or there's this whole puzzle like to figure out to try to make it so your base doesn't take damage. There's definitely a lot more to it. Right. And as you add more players, not only do you have to resolve more lanes, it's also the case that your universe of possible interrupts and effects expands. And so you're kibbutzing about, well, should I use my effect now? Should I trigger my Gatling gun? Whatever, whatever, whatever. And uh, what we're talking about is with with three players, easily two hours, definitely 90 minutes, uh, even if you're playing really fast. And that's not unforgivably long by itself, but it's probably more Xeno Shift than I want in a single yeah. sitting. And it's not the fact that the the monster's abilities are complicated. It's the fact that 
the the these abilities the monsters have have to work within this confined combat system. So therefore, the wording is always just slightly different. So you can't just like flip up. Oh, that does that. You have to just make sure it's like, oh yes, okay, that's exactly how this monster works. It's slightly different than this other one, and you have to deal with it slightly different. So that all takes up some extra time. So the one of the biggest problems I have with Xenoshift, other than the length, is some of the uh, stage three effects strike me as unfun. And again, I don't care about balance. I, you know, Doomrock is effectively unwinnable in most contexts, and that's fine. I care more about being able to play a co-op game to avoid moments of, you know, frustration. There's challenge, and that's great, but frustration is bad. There's one. There's a set of effects in the stage three, the the, the way the final wave effects that many of them take the form of whenever this enemy takes damage, the base takes some number of damage. And there's a couple of different creatures in different sets that do this. And what this means is you can go into wave three in an unwinnable situation. You're already dead. You just don't know it yet. That I don't like. That I think is poor design. It's it's just artificially inflating the game length. And it's putting you in unwinnable situations that uh, take a while to resolve. And I like the unwinnable situations to resolve as you've lost the game. Not just to reveal that, oh, well, this 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 monster came out and it's going to damage the base and there's nothing that anyone could have done about it ever because you need to kill the thing in order for it not to damage the base. But as, as you kill it, it takes damage and there's no way to cancel that. If there were a way to cancel it, if there was an expensive way you could soak it, that'd be one thing. But there's enough auto damage effects by hook or by crook in the deck that cause you to lose in wave three that I, I think are just a little obnoxious and shouldn't have made the final cut. Sure, it sort of goes into a point that I'm going to make, is that Xenoshift, like much other co-op games, it relies on a non-story-driven uh, mechanism, which is random card draw. And if you think about any co-op game, this is how this is the main mechanism that these designers are using. It's this random deck you know, uh, pandemic, I can go on. All these games use this deck that you draw off of and these random things happen. And unfortunately it's the main mechanism of co-op games. So you, you're doing at both ends. You're going to get random monsters and you're drawing randomly off of your deck thing. So that's one weakness. And like you said, you're going to get bad, sometimes really bad draws. At le- one thing they did do with uh, Dreadmire that they didn't do in Oddslot is they made the progression within a wave a little bit better. In uh, base onslaught, you're just going to get four random monsters every turn. And as you enter a new wave, that turn when you enter the new wave is just punishing because you're still dealing with antiquated stuff from the previous wave, but now you're dealing with the beefed up monsters. In Dreadmire, they've staggered it in such a way so that in the first turn of a wave, you get three monsters. In the second turn of a wave, you get four monsters. In the third turn of a wave, you get four monsters, and one of them is probably a boss. And so it really, really helps smooth out the, the difficulty curve in a, in a very positive way, and it makes things a little bit less arbitrary. Yeah, super simple way to, you know what I mean, a super simple rule that fixes the whole problem. I thought yes. it was a, a great and idea. Another one that can be backported to previous editions of Onslaught, so you don't even need to get Dreadmire. Parenthetically, if any of you have been playing, have Xenoshift Onslaught, and are playing it with the Onslaught rules, download the Dreadmire rulebook, play by those rules, it's just better. I only have one other uh, bad point. Sock it to me. I know we've, you know, hyped up how you can play co-op and do stuff in other people's lanes and play cards and give people cards, but I really feel it's a little bit of a solo game. It's like you're dealing with your own lane. Sometimes, you know, people might have a grenade they can throw your way or a troop they can give you, but you're really on your own, defending your own part of the base. In the universe of 
co-op deck builders. I actually think that it's slightly better than most, but yes, you're right. Much of the time you're just managing your own lane, asking for help when you need it. But I compare it to, say, Shadow Rift, where in Shadow Rift, you very frequently end up in a position where players specialize. And what that does is it kind of helps with the player interaction in that, you know, people have various tasks that they're expected to perform. But by the same token, it really undercuts your purchasing choices. And that's one of the, the, the primary ways in which I enjoy deck builders, just choosing what to buy and how to, how to integrate things. And in a game like Shadow Rift, after you've made the specialization decision, I'm in charge of sealing things. Like, well, I'm going to buy some more seals now. That's what I'm going to do. And so I agree with you that much of it is a little bit head down, as you would put it, when you're managing your lane. But I do think that the ability to buy and deploy cards to anybody does enough of a, of a good job to make me feel like it's, it's, it's definitely doing better than a lot of other co-op deck That's for sure. I agree. Although I am told that Aeon's End is the best game ever made. Uh, second only to Architects of the West Kingdom. <laughs> I stand corrected. So I will play Xenoshift when anyone, when anytime anyone ever suggests it, depending on how many players we've got. It is different every time. You're going to start off with a different room that you're going to defend, which is going to give you different cards in your starting deck. You're going to, you know, have a different mix of warriors that you can choose from, different random starting weapons, different mix of monsters that are attacking in a different order. It really is a different experience every time. Xenoshift has pretty much everything that I'm looking for in a deck builder and certainly everything that I'm looking for in a co-op deck builder. It's hard but not impossible. It rarely feels cheap, although sometimes it does. I get to buy and do cool things. I get to cooperate with other people, and I get to experience uh, some pretty neat art and some pretty scary-looking aliens. So as far as I'm concerned, it's definitely in the top tier of co-op de- uh, deck builders, and I'm honestly surprised that it doesn't get more appreciation. A lot of people don't seem to enjoy it. I think a lot of uh, many times that might be because they initially played it with four, which is absolutely a mistake. But if you can keep the player count low and if you can keep the game moving, I think that, uh, that Xenoshift is definitely worth your time. And it came out with really interesting expansions, like an expansion where you get, can give all your guys uh, telekinetic powers, and another expansion where you actually start doing, you know, uh, weird bio experiments with the aliens, so you start grafting on these, like, freaky alien arms onto your warriors, and the, so they can do all sorts of interesting attacks, and I thought all that was very interesting and cool. So like, that's... Like any other deck builder, you're going to want additional stuff. And there's just enough stuff available in Xenoshift to really give you that endless variety without, you know, drowning in 12 waves of expansions. That's Xenoshift by Cool Mini or Not. So the topic this week is one versus all versus co-op versus semi-co-op versus versus. Walker can be credited with the uh, excellent meter of that topic. And I would just like to start with an observation. Why is it? That every game has to be everything. Why is it that every game has to have a co-op version, has to have a solo variant, has to have a versus version? Like every, it's not just Kickstarter designs either. But honestly, when I read on the back of the box or at the start of the rulebook saying like, pick which game mode you're going to be playing. You can either play it, it can julienne fries. You can play the salad mode. You can it can be deep fried chicken. I, it's just because I think a lot of people have internalized that they like a particular type of game. Like, oh, I only like co-op games, or oh, I only like this type of game. So therefore, these people are trying to make games that appeal to everyone. That could be part of it. I respect that, but in a, in a, in an environment where there's a hojillion games released all the time. And I don't care whether you have a game collection of zero games or a game collection of a thousand games. I vastly prefer it when a game has what could be called editorial direction. You know, a vision of what it's trying to do, both thematically and mechanically, 
and how it's going to execute that, the experience that it wants to engender, right? Just a notion of what it is that the players are supposed to take out of the experience that they're sitting down to play. And if you design a game that can be played in a hojillion different ways, I have yet to see that pull off anything remotely resembling that kind of focused experience. And so I respect the fact that some people don't want to play anything other than co-ops. I understand that, that, that perspective. I'm not particularly sympathetic to it, but I certainly understand where it comes from. Then play a game that was designed to be a co-op. I mean, well, that, well, from what you're saying, I'm, I'm just think I had an idea was the fact that all these different things, like say uh, movies and uh, TV shows, Hollywood, food, they all come to their things full circle, where they all go through things that are almost identical stages. So restaurants now and movies are all going back to this one theme. Like restaurants will do one thing really well, right? They, they come from this thing where they try to satisfy everybody, have this giant menu. And movies, you know, try to cover all of these different heroes and villains all packed into one movie or all these different storylines. And now they've gotten back to being just simplistic and basic. That and is not – I agree with you about restaurants. I don't agree with you about movies. I don't think that's – Some of them. I mean, but they're not there yet. I'm not saying they all <laughs> okay. They all come to these things at the same time. Okay, right? okay. So we can hope that maybe our little hobby will come to the same thing where we'll realize that why don't we just concentrate on this one thing and do this one thing really well. Well, if we wanted to be really cynical about it, I think that you know your explanation is a market-driven explanation. We want to be able to put out a product that will sell as many copies as possible. Whereas my question, which was rhetorical, by the way, do you know what rhetorical means for a question? <laughs> well, if you knew what rhetorical meant, you wouldn't have tried to answer my rhetorical question. But anyway, part of this is the fact that you don't see a lot of development work anymore. You know, every every, every designer is 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 their own developer, is their own publisher, is their own hype person. Uh, I guess, sorry, I, sh- I should not be so grotesquely cynical when I said this wasn't just a, a Kickstarter process, and it's not. It's just I'm a little bit, I, I'm just a little bit sick and tired of uh, the endless push that's that's clearly market-driven. You're absolutely right, because every Kickstarter project where it, that's designed to be semi-co-op, you know that there's going to be a bunch of people saying, I'm not going to touch this unless it's pure co-op, make a co-op a variant. And very often, Game designers cave. You know, it's the same problem that Massive Darkness had where they wanted a campaign variant, so they're going to shove it in. I was going to say, as soon as they see them caving, then it's like, oh, we want a campaign too. And then, you know, they have to cave because they have this history of caving. Yeah. All right, let's start off. What I've done is list. Well, we we haven't started yet. Uh, Yeah, I'm not sure. What I've done is I've listed them all of them here, and I have some games listed under each one, and then some points that I like to make up to each So, one V all. We're talking about games like Spectre Ops, Descent, Imperial Assault. Do you have any ones you want to throw in there quickly? Well, we reviewed Level 7 Omega Protocol. We talked about Smog Rise of Malak a second ago. We played uh, Siege of the Citadel last week. Games like that, yeah. So sometimes very unsatisfying is what I have here. Just the fact that sometimes it's not very balanced. or the it, What they do in these 1v all games is that they're very scenario-driven. In almost all of them, they give you the base characters and the base villains, and they're very unbalanced. Like, if you were to put them toe-to-toe, you know, it, it doesn't make any sense. So what they do is they create these scenarios uh, biased, usually towards one, because they it's a campaign system. So they sort of skew it for one side, the very first one, or the first few, and then they skew it the other way. So sometimes, if you only play it once in a while, it seems very unsatisfying when you're finished. I agree. They give the sensation that you're going to have a sort of competitive experience, and we have this 
natural assumption that competitive experience is supposed to be roughly balanced. And it's hard enough to balance 1v all mechanics to begin with. And because they're scenario driven, they tend to have unbalanced scenarios on top of that. Now, some people love being the overlord or the or the or the or the you know the, the the bad guy or what have you. It's sort of a relic of some people who really really like being game masters from role playing games. But again, there's there's often this sort of cognitive dissonance whereby if I'm sitting there and I'm the overlord, what is my job here? Is my job to try to crush them as hard as possible? Is this like a, a, a normal competitive experience? Some games, it's very clear that the job of the overlord is to try to facilitate the overall play experience, and so they shouldn't be trying to play optimally the entire time. All of these reasons are why I tend not to like 1v all games, and I find them just ill-conceived, or sorry, not ill-conceived, but conceived in a way that doesn't play to game elements that I particularly enjoy. Now, the, the salient exception to that is I do really think that level 7 Mega, Mega Protocol is so mechanically satisfying that I, I, I do think it's worthwhile, despite all those problems. But even while playing Omega Protocol, I still have all those problems with it. Well, I'm going to sum that up with, it feels like you're ganging up. And yeah, that goes on. That goes on both sides, right? Because as the villain, sometimes you're really picking on one character because you know you're wounding him and you want to get him out. So you really feel as though you're picking on that one guy. Yep. And the other thing is the overall, like you, have, you might have a group of three or four, and you're all against this one player. So it feels like you're picking on them, or you're you're all conspiring to do an optimal move. So you have three heads figuring out this optimal move against this one, and so. So that feeds into my next point, was, which is sometimes you just feel as though there's no way you can win. Because that sort of goes back to the point I made about the scenario. You sort of see, oh, this has been skewed because they want the first one to be, you know, you know, villain-based or hero-based. And you're saying, well, there's no way I can win this because it's been skewed against me. And, and so it sort of takes you out of the experience. It is a very strange social dynamic that some people really love, but I don't. And you're absolutely right. It, it in most of these games, it's built into the design that it is in the overlord's interest to pick on a single character, the one with the least defense, the one that's easily squishable, whatever. And that, I, I just don't like that particular dynamic. It just, it, it, I don't find it a pleasant social experience, by and large. All right, so co-op games. We're talking about the one we just talked about, like Xenoshift or Spirit Island or Shadow Rift or... Well, there's a million of them. There's a million. I thought maybe, <laughs> no, I thought maybe you had some specifics on your list there. All right, so... Uh, I'll just go through some of mine very quickly. Quarterbacking or alpha gaming. This is what happens a lot in in co-op games because you're sort of all on the same side. A lot of the times you all have the same ability. Like in Pandemic, everyone's just doing the same actions. So you're sort of saying, oh, well, you know, that's not optimal. You should have done it this way or do it this way. Or if, if, if I were you... This is what I would do. How dare you throw that in my face? I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not telling you how to do your your turn. But if you want us to win, no, you would oh, do it no, this no, 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 no. Okay, okay, okay. You started out by parodying <laughs> the way that I talk to other players, <laughs> and then you inserted the "but if you want us to win," because I have a sincere question for you. Because I, I, quarterbacking is a, is a huge topic in and of itself. But you're right that it is endemic to this particular kind of uh, play mode. Do you think that in the co-op games in well, certainly the co-op games that we've played together, whether with or without other people, have you personally felt that quarterbacking has been a serious problem? No, I'm very much against it. I'm, I make sure I make a point of it, and I haven't had to, to rein anyone back. I had to do it in the convention. Did you, really? I did have to rein somebody back because, uh, yeah, because that was happening. Sure. But uh, in, in our group, I haven't, I haven't had to do it in quite a while. Yeah, 
many people refuse to play co-ops that have any possibility of quarterbacking, you know, and that's why they tend to gravitate towards things like Space Alert or even sometimes things like Spirit Island because they're allegedly, you know, the emergence complexity is, is so big nobody can handle the information load. Then there are the, the co-op games that just uh, preclude you from communicating at all, like Hanabi. There's no quarterbacking problem in Hanabi because you're just not allowed to tell people what to do. And, you know, there, there, there are virtues to all these systems, but... Then there are people who refuse to play co-ops for slightly different reasons. I mean, quarterbacking is a legit problem. We know actually somebody who refuses to play co-op games because they feel that inevitably co-op games reduce to some sort of inanimate puzzle, whether it actually feels like a puzzle or it's just a set of mechanisms and so forth. And that's not what they want out of games. What they want out of games is outsmarting other people specifically. They don't want to outsmart a system. They want to outsmart a person. And that's at least how they express their misgivings towards uh, co-op games. And that's, you know, again, that's a legitimate preference. The flip side of that, of course, is the social dynamic of most co-op games is that there is infinitely less possibility of someone being a super competitive jerk. And that's one of the reasons why I know some people who strongly prefer co-op games, because either they feel themselves getting competitive in a way they don't like, or they care too much about winning. It's weird. I, uh, you know, it, it, it's like the old joke about uh, about partnerships. It makes the victory sweeter, and it makes that the losses easier to shoulder. And that's absolutely true of, of my experiences of co-op games. I have yet to see anyone take a loss in a co-op game personally, whereas I've seen people take losses in competitive games very, very personally. And that that, that is that is a non-trivial advantage of co-op design. So I can certainly understand why there are so many users and and, and gamers that play co-ops almost exclusively. It's a shared goal. It's like a shared adventure. It's like we've talked about this before, where it's like you're all together, you're going on this quest, usually you're all have this shared goal, and when, when you do succeed, it's this, you know, a, a great feeling. You know what I mean? It is a great experience sometimes when it goes off well. I find it hard to really savor co-op victories simply because the market is inundated with co-op games that are vastly too easy. That's another point I have right here. Co-op games are too easy. Gener- yeah, that's generally been my experience. It's just, you shouldn't, I, I, I had a friend in, in Cambridge who who really opened my eyes to this. In his position was he automatically distrusted any co-op game that he could win the first time he was playing it. He's like, well, that's it. I'm done with that game. Yeah. There's no there's no skill horizon, I'm, so I'm, screw it. We're I'm done. very close to that as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another point I should have just put into the too easy part is the fact that sometimes when it's too easy, you find yourself that you have nothing to do. Yes. Because, you know, you're so far ahead or everyone else is doing so well. You say, it's my turn. It's like, well, I can't make it to this spot to do anything. I, You know, this part's already taken care of. And you're just sort of sitting there, well, I, I, I don't know what I can do to help. Wasted actions, though, I find are endemic to all game designs. Any game design where you're given a certain number of actions or resources or so forth, and you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, I've got nothing to do with this with this marginal thing that I can do. Uh, the further away that is from the end game, the less forgiving I am of that. Very often in, in, in games, you know, in the very last turn, it's like, well, I've done everything. I can't really do anything else with this last thing. And that's kind of okay. But I don't think that's particularly more problematic with co-ops. I think it's just, again, if, if the co-op is too easy, then yes, very often people don't have anything to do because you only needed three players to accomplish this task, but there's a fourth at the table. And so when their turn rolls around, they've, they've, they've got nothing to do. But I don't think that that's particularly a, a, a problem of co-op designs. I just thought, well, while you're saying that, sometimes it's a race to grab things, too. Like, you know, when there was, there's a penny on the table and it's a co-op game and only one person going to get it, sometimes it goes into silliness. Well, shall we use that as a segue to get into yeah. semi-co-op it's games? semi-co-op <laughs> games. This is games. There's games like Archipelago. Yep. That's a semi-co-op. 
And then there's games that have the traitor element, like Deception, Battlestar Galactica, Shadows Over Camelot, Dead of Winter. All of these games have a traitor element, which make them a semi-co-op as opposed to a pure co-op game. I have yet to play a semi-co-op game that I like. I'll just I'll just make that yeah, that generalization. I, I just I, haven't I haven't seen one that really works. I'm going over this list, and well, De- we both enjoy Deception. It works. It works fairly. fairly so well. it's weird. I don't. To me, Deception isn't really a semi co-op in the same way. Now, this is probably a distinction without a difference, right? But to my mind, Deception fits more squarely into team-based games, where you just don't know what the teams are. Now, maybe this is this is nonsense, but one of the key differences between a game like Deception and a game like, say, Shadows Over Camelot or Battlestar Galactica is you know for a fact that there is a murderer, and you know that your job as the as the the, the, the the loyal police officers is to defeat the murderer. In a game of Shadows Over Camelot, of Dead of Winter, of Battles of Galactic, your job is to defeat the game system, and there is some possibility of some number of people who are assisting the game system. You just don't know how many of them there are. And in some cases, that number is zero, and in some cases, that answer is one. And that just highlights one of the problems that I have with a lot of these semi-co-ops. The balance is often so crazy wonky, it makes the problems inherent in the 1v all genre look pale in comparison. You take a look at Dead of Winter, for example. Independently of the fact that the individual victory conditions that you that you dealt out at the beginning, so there's some encouragement to be selfish there, can be trivial to borderline impossible based on the overall scenario setup. Then you add in the fact that maybe someone's trying to kill you all and maybe not. So the the, the possible outcomes are so huge in terms of, of the difficulty of the task that and that's that's often endemic to the to the the, the the semi-co-op genre. I just I do not find it satisfying or engaging. I don't find that it inspires paranoia. I find that it inspires frustration. Yeah, I, I, like I said, I looked over this list quickly. It's like, yeah, I, I don't own any of these games. <laughs> Many semi-co-op games tend to build in these very, very strange communication restrictions, precisely because you have to remain agnostic as to whether or not people are helping you or or hurting you. And I find them very unsatisfying most of the time, whether it's, uh, you know, the, the, the shadows over Camelot saying, I'm playing a good card here. It's like, well, how good is the card? Pretty. Good. <laughs> you know, the same communication, more or less the same communication restrictions exist in Battlestar Galactica. And I, I, I do not enjoy communication restrictions like that. They, they strike me as so artificial and difficult to honor, quote unquote, in the spirit of the game. We talked about this in the context of Gloomhaven. Correct. Where it's like, I would really like to open that door for no particular reason. Well, I am attacking really fast this turn. Exactly. I uh, And... So many semi-co-op games have to build that in real hardcore, and I just don't like it. Agreed. So on to the last part, which is competitive or versus, uh, sorry, uh, versus, versus, <laughs> versus, versus, versus. Okay. So Buffalo, Buffalo, Buffalo? Buffalo. I find you can focus, you focus a lot more in competitive games because you're just worried about what you're doing. You know you have a definite goal, and I think as though... You want to do well because you're driving the other players to do well. Like you don't just, you know, because in co-op games or semi-co-ops, it doesn't really, you know, you can just let it go. And if you lose, then that's okay. But in competitive games, if you just, you know, decide to give up and whatever, it affects the gameplay. So you're always focused. You're always driving hard because you want everyone to do their best. It's strange. I actually have the opposite set of experiences. I agree with you that that's the way things ought to work. 
But I've actually found that in co-ops, people are naturally engaged because they don't want to let down the team. Whereas in competitive games, if people feel that they are not able to win, if they if they either correctly or falsely internalize that they're just not in a position to win, a lot of people check out. I see people check out and disengage with competitive games vastly more frequently, I think, than in co-op games, precisely because there's a different set of social pressures. And we have this intuition that, oh, well, it's a competitive game. If I stop playing well, that just helps everybody else, so who cares? And, I mean, that, that just relates to one of the design challenges of competitive games. And one of the reasons why, I think this also feeds into why there are so many more co-op games. Engagement in a co-op often comes cheap. It often comes easily because you can naturally rely on people's cooperative instincts to help each other out towards a common goal. Whereas in a competitive game, the good ones, mind you, especially the ones that aren't multiplayer solitaire, you have to earn that engagement. You have to make sure that people brush up against each other in meaningful ways and in meaningfully satisfying ways that are not frustrating or degenerate. Which is one of the reasons why, parenthetically, I've been spending more time lately with area majority games. Because I think that the solid area majority Euros really do this in spades. And that that's often, I think, the 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 apex of a, of a good competitive game. You know, the ones that are not frustrating, where there's constant player interaction, where you have to care what everyone else is doing while you're pursuing your own goals, which, again, is not to crap all over multiplayer solitaire games. Again, we both love Feast for Odin. We love games like that. But ideally, a little more player interaction is the way to do it. And getting that satisfying engagement, I often find, is harder for, for competitive designs. I don't know if that's been your experience. Yeah, for sure. No, all those points make sense to me. I only, I only have one other point for competitive games, the fact that I think it gives designers more freedom. Because we've already talked about the handcuffing that goes on with semi-co-ops, you know, with you know shutting down communication, and the fact that co-ops often, 99% of the time, rely on these random deck pulls. I think designers have a lot more freedom to, you know, create a more robust game mechanic in these competitive games. The last thing that I'd like to talk about under the aegis of just all of these different kinds of things is I find it frustrating and unsatisfying when the theme really doesn't match with the kind of game design that you're talking about. This is just a a specific example about the, the evolution. Back in the day, before co-ops really exploded, so pre-pandemic. I mean, the first the first major, I think, satisfying co-op was probably Reiner Knizia's Lord of the Rings, but I had everything to do with, with J.R.R. Tolkien, so I never really played that much. And so for me, pandemic was really... And also the market really sort of blew up after after pandemic. And yeah, there were ones before that, like you know, the old Chaosium, uh, Call of Cthulhu, stuff like that. Whatever. Setting all that aside. Dungeon crawlers. Designing a competitive dungeon crawler is weird. You, you look at even the good ones, Mage Knight Dungeons, or the bad ones like Dungeon with an exclamation point, things like that. They, the ones that were not 1v all were all kind of strange, and they don't fit with our thematic expectations of how that story progresses. We don't have our, – our imagination of how, the way a dungeon encounter works is not like three to four competing uh, groups of adventurers descending into the same dungeon and then kind of maybe ignoring each other much of the time. Like, does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. But now that they can all be co-ops, or at least many of them are uh, co-ops, that just makes more sense. You are part of a team and the monsters are automated or controlled by an overlord in the case of the 1v-alls. So that, I think, is definitely a step forward. And the times that, you know, your more recent dungeon crawlers have been competitive games, again, it's, it's, just, it's just kind of weird. It doesn't fit the style or the narrative. It's also one of the, uh, just to pick a relatively minor example, it's one of my problems with the game Vengeance, which I, I'm actually probably going to pull out over the course of the next week to play uh, to play 
Solo because Vengeance emulates very, very well a classic staple of the revenge movie. And it does it really, really well. But the problem is a revenge movie... In a revenge movie, you don't have two people who are wronged by different people competing about who can murder their their aggressors better. Like, that's just not how it works. Now, a co-op version of Vengeance would make sense because typically, the you know, you can wrong a group of people and they'll cooperate to murder all the people that wronged them. Anyway, that those are a couple of examples of, you know, thematic disconnects with the sort of mode that, that that's being generated. And... When a game is firing on all cylinders, I, I do really appreciate when the, the, the style of play matches with the story it's trying to tell. The last point I'm going to make is often you're asked, you know, well, what kind of game do you like? What's your favorite type of game? And my answer is it's all, this, these are all mood-driven choices for me, like all this, you know, co-op, competitive. It, it all depends on how I feel that day. Like I do not have any any preference to any of these game styles. I agree. Like, we're, look, we're both omnivores. We play all kinds of games of all kinds of genres. Uh, it, and it really it depends on who you're playing with and the mood. We know some people who don't want to play co-ops and some people who vastly prefer co-ops. We know some people, if they're in a, in a certain mood sometimes, we think maybe better to play a co-op because they might get easily frustrated, things like that. But as, as I said at the outset, I completely understand the people who only ever want to play one style of game. It's not my bag, but then again, not everyone is in a position of you know cycling through a tremendous quantity of games and they'd rather just stick with what they know and what they like, and that's fine. So thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again very much for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. If you like the show, tell a friend. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <laughs>